Hey all, and thanks for listening to Brubble, a podcast gathering young voices and perspectives from around the Brussels bubble. Europe stands in a precarious place today, on the midst of an energy crisis, with a war in its own continent, and on the cusp of air-defining trends such as digitalization and green transition. And with all of this as a backdrop, all eyes were on European Commission President von der Leyen this morning, as she took to the stage in Strasbourg to deliver her annual State of the Union speech. And that speech is exactly what Julian is joining me here today to explore and dissect. How are you doing, Julian? I'm doing great, thanks. I had a very interesting speech this morning, so very happy with what we heard. Great, great. Do you want to introduce yourself a bit to the people? Tell them why they should believe what's coming out of your mouth. Sure, of course. So, hi, I'm Julien Oez. I'm a French political specialist who focuses on the European Union and international relations. And uh, in my day job, I work for a European political foundation. And outside of that, I am a specialist who provides commentary for news stations and who works within the ecosystem of La République En Marche in France. Yeah, so I assume given that journalistic background, this is a pretty special day for you, right? Were you excited when you woke up this morning? <laughs> oh, of course. I've been looking forward to this for two or three weeks now because it's, it's a big event. It used to have a bad reputation as something that was just a box to be ticked by the commission. Mm-hmm. And to an extent, it was in the early days of the Juncker Commission. But it's now become a, an event, a yearly event, just like the American State of the Union, which people look forward to because we learn about what's to come in the European Union and what we should expect. Yeah, just a general state of play in a sense. And with that general state of play, what did we think about it today? And and I will let the people know, we're recording this on the day of the State of Union, albeit a bit in the evening. So we've had a few hours to dissect what was said. And initial reactions, Julian, what what are you coming away from this with? I mean, honestly, I think this was a really strong uh, State of the Union compared to the other State of the Unions that I've watched in the last decade. It has been something that's been quite refreshing. We see a typically these were known as just box ticking events. Look at the great things we've done. Please keep giving us money and look at how amazing the commission is. Please support the European Union and this kind of messaging there. But this time we saw quite a lot in terms of what the European Union sees almost as the the normative future of the EU. We saw a lot of hope and future-based discourse that showed that there's a horizon in view. We saw a lot of these are the crises to come and this is exactly how we overcome them. And we also saw a lot of work on, let's say, reinforcing the sense of Europeanness. There was a lot of discourse on the resilience of the European people. I mean, von der Leyen herself was talking about, in the frame of the energy crisis, the fact that workers in ceramics factories have moved their shifts to the early morning when electricity is the cheapest. And she left us with a quote, which, I mean, this stuck in my head, and this has been in my head all day, so it will hopefully be stuck in your head for the next few weeks, talking about how we need to imagine the fact that you've got people in Europe who aren't involved in the Ukrainian war, who are having to leave their children behind in bed early in the morning, not take them to schools to be able to work effectively and not be punished by the war happening because of Putin's decisions in the East. And this is something that touched me quite a lot because it was a very emotive statement to make. Yeah, I felt like the speech in itself was more of a, a grasp on the European communion itself. It was really identifying, in a sense, what makes us European and really what ties us together in that sense, and also how that community expands and contrasts at the border surrounding it. 
Yeah, and we even saw announcements that could affect the way that the European Union develops in the future. I mean, I don't know how many of your followers follow <laughs> deeply and at a microscopic level the European political discourse, but one of the big announcements today was the European political community yeah. initiative or proposal, we can call it, being put forward to the Council by the European Council by the Commission after it had a tepid response when French President Emmanuel Macron suggested it as a way of getting non-EU states close to the EU, which was a huge step. Yeah, because I, I think one of my favorite quotes to, to throw this back at you was when she was addressing Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia specifically, and she said, our union is not complete without you. And that really showed to me that Europe in itself is much grander these days than the initial consensus behind it, where it's not just a block of regulations, it's, it's a community at its sense, and in a community, in a family, you care about the members on the outside. Yes, of course, and this is something that I've had, I've been particular because of my education in European affairs and my interaction in politics. There has been quite a big sense of this within the communities I've been in. You know, when I interact with Moldovans, I don't see them as Moldovans. I yeah. see them, and have usually seen them as future Europeans. Mm-hmm. Same with the Ukrainians. Once I was looking maybe as early as 2012, 2013, when I was starting my studies at university, for example, I was always asking myself, why didn't we make more efforts with states in the East like Ukraine? Yeah. And this is something that's becoming more and more prevalent, even in the, the general population, even in people who aren't politically active they see these countries as future European Union member states. And it's quite striking when you think about it. I guess going off that, and I promise we'll get into the deep topics in a second, but what kind of message do you think this speech sent both to Europeans but also to people who aren't Europeans, so I guess our allies and our strategic competitors? Do do, do you think that there was a different messaging coming from this than previous uh, state of unions? Well, in previous states of union, and particularly last year, there was a lot placed on the idea of the EU being more competitive at the global level. And we have to remember, and this is something to keep in mind, Ursula von der Leyen's commission was supposed to be, quote-unquote, the geopolitical Mm -hmm. European commission, which up until now it didn't necessarily push through, but in the wake of the Ukraine invasion, we've seen the EU develop by at least 10 years in certain policy areas. I mean, historically, the EU was never able to provide weaponry to foreign states in support of their survival. But we made this happen as a union early this year. And we saw that this is a very geopolitical, very competitive-sounding discourse. And we'll get into the nitty-gritty in a second. But it, I think this is the state of the union where the European Commission starts to finally sound geopolitical, starts to sound competitive, and it starts to sound like it's willing to put up a fight on the international arena, which for me is a huge step. Mm. Yeah, no, I definitely got that broader, you know, vision setting, mandate setting kind of sense of it. Because now I feel like drawing from that stated union to 2022 state union, I can much clearer identify in a sense what we want Europe to be known as across the world. Yes, of course. And this is very, and this doesn't just rest in the realm of foreign policy either. It also rests in the realm of what they're doing domestically at the European level. I mean, we saw the announcement of a follow-up to COFOE, which would be a permanent citizens panel that would keep people interacting, Mm -hmm. which benefits also from the increased, let's say, participation from the European Year of Youth, which showed young people across the board. You can get engaged, you can take part. And this is something that's very... It's powerful. 
And it's something that the we're starting to see this more and more. The State of the Union address by the European Commission president starts to sound more and more like those that we see in the US, mm. even with the differences between the power of the European Council, the Commission, et cetera, et cetera, and the member states. This is starting to build up into something that sounds like the development of, dare I say, some kind of federal union <laughs> of some kind. And I mean, you as a, you as a Frenchman, I, I assume you have some opinions about that, but... Did you think this is a good move or a good inclination to make? Because, I mean, personally, as somebody who's not as educated in EU affairs as I should be, it's nice to have a playbook out there, a bit of a, a compass, so to say. It is. And you could even say it's nice to have some kind of strategic compass that to keep us uh, in the right <laughs> direction. But I think there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it mm. in general. I, even taking the French point of view, in some cases, it can sound like we don't want federalism, we want to stand alone just with extra help. But overall, having more unity, having more augmented power through our union, which is something that Emmanuel Macron has said quite often, and even Clément Bourne, his former Europe minister, well, not Europe minister, but Europe advisor, have said, it's something that actually enables us to engage globally and keep competitive and stay competitive and help allies like Ukraine when they need it, or how to stand against the, let's say, not bullying, but aggressive competition from the US and slightly more aggressive competition from China. Yeah, yeah. No, I, th I think that's a good, I guess, diving point into this. And I, I think the way I want to go about the, like, the next few minutes here is to go into the, the biggest issues that von der Leyen touched upon and, and maybe dive a bit into what she said and how that relates to Europe for the next year or, or five years or decade. Um, so, I mean, obviously, the first issue to start with is Ukraine, which you noticed even before the speech started when we saw, when we saw the commissioners come in with their, their matching yellow outfits, which I must say, von der Leyen did it the best, which I don't know if that was planned, but... <laughs> yeah, there was definitely some coordination going on there, and there was some slight uh, competition, we'll say, between the commissioners. But no, the, um, the Ukraine crisis featured heavily in the discussion. I think Ukraine was one of the most used, if not the used, most yeah. used word out of the entire speech. And aside from putting forward the, the fact that the European Union has contributed 19 billion euros in assistance so far, which is a huge number, let's not forget, there was also a lot of good strong initiatives in place that will help the Ukrainians in their fight and the recovery after they hopefully regain natural sovereignty over all of their territories. I mean, there was a pledge that provide an additional 100 million euros to rebuild and repair schools. There was a pledge to engage Ukraine in the European free roaming area. And there was even talk, I'm not sure what the concrete look of this will be, but there was even talk about opening up the access to the single market to yeah. uh, Ukraine, which, let's be honest, is huge. Yeah. For a country like Ukraine, it's huge. There are questions about whether the Ukrainian market is ready, because this is part of the, let's say, the box-ticking exercise in order to make sure that countries that join the EU don't end up with their market completely obliterated by European competitors. But I think this is going to be part of the negotiations that are going to take place in Kiev between Zelensky and von der Leyen. But it was, a, it was a great speech. There was a lot of talk about what we've done. And let's also not forget that she was clear about the fact that, and I'm quoting her directly there, 
we should have listened to those who know Putin, yeah. those in the Baltics and those to the East who said he isn't going to stop. And they were right. We, a few of us were saying this for years. We can't just let what happened in Ukraine in 2014 go unpunished. We have to keep on our toes. We have to support our friends and we have to support our allies. But she also did something that was quite important in breaking down why we're going through what we're going through and why it's good. I mean, for example, a few points. Um, she said herself that the Russian financial sector is on life support, which is true. And I think the entire market currently is suffering heavily, even with the extremely heavy handed support by the Kremlin. That w- around 1000 international companies abandoned the country in the wake of what's happening now. And that one of the big markers of a national economy, no matter the size, is the number of cars in production. That the production of cars fell by three quarters compared to last year, recently, which mm-hmm. is going to have a big impact on the on the country itself. And it's much worse than that. I mean, you could probably spend an entire State of the Union speech yeah. talking about all the damage to the Russian economy. But it was important to show that this is happening and that this is actually... While we're paying a cost yeah. in of solidarity to our European brothers and sisters in Ukraine, we are also inflicting an even heavier cost on the Russian state, which mm. is important to put into context for the people who are maybe starting to feel a bit nervous about what's coming. And just, I guess, supposed to follow up on inflicting a heavier cost, and as well as lessons from the Baltics, for instance, who had been warning about Putin and Russia. One of the omissions, in a sense, that many people noticed from the speech was the lack of defense talk. Maybe it's because the Ukrainians have been doing remarkably well in their recent counteroffensives. Maybe there wasn't a need to include defense notations. But did that, you know, raise your ears in any sense, how there was very little talk of defense? And I mean, even looking at last year's speech, she, she was talking about a, European, a common European defense front or something when in reference to Afghanistan, something that wasn't even mentioned here while there was a war in Europe. So we can read a couple of things from that. So one of the things that we can read is that there is still a lot of work to do to convince everybody at the table that this is something that's necessary. Already we're seeing initiatives between member states to collaborate and create uh, cross-country battalions similar to the one between uh, the, the Germans and the Dutch. And... Of course, it was impacted by the fact that we're now seeing an increased refocusing on NATO and what form NATO should take and how NATO should look, which is quite important because this was one of the big things that Macron was heavily criticized for when he said that NATO is brain dead, we need to change it and reform it or kill it. And to an extent, he's been proven true. But the invasion of Ukraine has changed the paradigm significantly in that NATO has been shown to be a lot more attractive, a lot more useful than we thought. And the strategic compass passing earlier this year, following the Ukraine invasion, has it set the basis of the discussions for a period of time. The re-election of Emmanuel Macron has also pushed this further, the expansion of permanent enhanced security cooperation, PESCO has also had a big impact on the discussions. But because it's in a quite a, a state of germination where people are still trying to feel each other out, half hour everyone's going to go, it's something that needs time to develop. 
And on top of that, we've got an accession candidate in Ukraine mm. who, because of the support of the West, because of the support of NATO, and because of the support of the Russian military soldiers fleeing and leaving their equipment behind, has become a military power at the European level, which also changes the discussions and the dimensions and changes the airfare across the board. Because, let's be honest, Ukraine has become a security guarantor for the European Union, <laughs> which is quite interesting. Yeah, And this changes the discussions completely. And now what happens in Ukraine politically is going to have an impact across the board there too. So I think it was almost an impossible ask for von der Leyen to say anything yeah. about security aside from saying European security is a good idea, let's keep <laughs> trying, you know. Yeah, and I suppose I don't want to dwell on Ukraine for, forever, but one of the issues of Ukraine, when you're saying they're becoming a security guarantor, they can also very potentially become an energy guarantor. And that really plays into, the, I think, the second huge theme within this uh, within the State of the Union speech, which is energy security, which is on everybody's top of the mind as it grows colder and windier and drearier here in Brussels. Uh. Yeah, and I was starting to get the first feelings of autumn and winter today when I felt that my head was genuinely cold after months of heat waves. <laughs> but this, that's an interesting question, but I think it's less dangerous than people believe. Mm-hmm. Because, sure, hypothetically, we would be at risk of the same issues that we had with Russian energy's provision with Ukraine, very hypothetically. But because of the divestment from Russian energy sources that's happening now, now that there's alternative sources being sought pretty much everywhere, that's not as big of a danger as you think. And I think a part of the discussion of EU strategic autonomy has now taken in as a core position the need to have energy independence as a European Union, but also as member states. I mean, in France, we're opening new LNG terminals in several places, including Le Havre. And you're now seeing energy sharing agreements coming up between member states. So it's not that big of an issue. But we saw some huge proposals from the uh, and huge announcements from the Commission in general. I mean, one thing that's quite important for your listeners to know, because, again, we need to understand why we're going through this pain, and it is a bit of a pain, is that Russian gas imports to Europe have actually dropped from 40% to 9% as a combination of the shutdown of terminals going from Russia to to Europe, but also as a result of Europe saying that they're just not going to buy Russian oil anymore and gas, which is useful. But we're seeing a lot of proposals that are quite interesting. And something that some of your viewers may have heard, and or your listeners, sorry, is that pretty much immediately after the State of the Union speech, one thing that we saw was the proposal of raising around 140 billion euros for member states to be able to provide a cushion for European citizens in light of the energy crisis and in light of all the issues happening, combined with a proposed cap on the cost of energy coming from low-cost energy producers because there's the issue of electricity being tied to the cost of gas. Combining all of these together and the proposals for reducing energy consumption at peak times, what we saw was that uh, the EU member states were starting to roll out their proposals pretty much immediately after the State of the Union speech where what we saw, for example, in France was that they pretty much immediately after announced an extension of the uh, energy shield or the tariff shield, we call it in France, 
protecting consumers from excessive costs and excessive increases that we've seen in some member states or even some countries like in the UK. We also saw the announcement of a task force that's intending to look at measures regarding the relationships that the EU and the member states have with energy suppliers. And we're even seeing a relaxation of state aid rules, one of the big contentious parts of EU policy, to allow member states to better support these energy companies who are having issues with the costs and who are therefore putting the prices up, not purely out of opportunism, but because that's the cost of business, in order to help to reduce that. And in general, we saw quite a lot of good, strong proposals on that front, the fiscal hawks and the fiscal doves may disagree on that, but for the average person, for you and I and the people listening to this, there is a lot of benefit to what is happening, and we will see a benefit to this. It may even have an impact on inflation, but yeah. at that point, we need to have a look at what actually happens, what the proposal ends up being, and if it's possible. But on top of that, we saw two other key things that I'll quickly mention. As part of Repower EU, there was a goal announced of producing around 10 million tons of renewable hydrogen every year by 2030, which is which would go a long way to providing for the energy needs of the European Union. And alongside this, the announcement of a new European Bank of Hydrogen, which would use innovation funds to guarantee the purchase and would invest around 3 billion euros into the hydrogen market at the European level, further giving us more support and protecting us from the hypothetical scenario where Ukraine decides to blackmail us for the gas, which I still think is very unlikely, yeah. for the record. Yeah, no. I mean, on the energy topic too, when I was when she was finished at the energy section, one of the things that I felt the most from an empathetic point of view was a bit of a relief because when heading into the speech, I was the gloom and doom of the energy crisis, of uh, you know the, the, the cold winters we'll have, the, the lack of heating. And by the time she was finished, uh, she produced, produced some statistics that I think we were exceeding expectations for gas storage. We had all these new measures coming in. We had some relatively innovative new policy approaches on the table here. Yes. And, and I, I, I was somewhat relieved at the fact that I, I felt we tackled this almost meeting the rhetoric that comes out of the European Commission when they're saying we're tackling crises in two weeks now, which yeah. I suppose on this front, we kind of did in a sense. I, I guess you got to give a... Props to them, I suppose. Yeah, of course. And this is some. This is what I mean by the fact that it's starting to look more like a State of the Union speech from the US and that we're not just talking about the successes of the last year or aspirations. There were some concrete proposals and concrete statistics yeah. there. I mean, like you say, joint EU gas storage right now is ahead of schedule and is currently sitting at 84%, yeah. which will go a long way to making our lives easier in the long run. And, of course, you've got some member states that are, are further ahead. I think in France we're sitting around 93. In Germany they're around 88% of total gas capacity storage. And it's true that we need to have a commission that knows how to speak to the people. And this is how you speak to the people. You're scared. You're worried. We understand. This is what we're doing. This is what it means. And this is what it means for you. Mm. And this is what von Lein did quite well today. Yeah. And I, I think we're we're really eating up time here, but it's a great conversation. And I wanted to touch on maybe a few more small points on the economy and democracy and especially the Critical Raw Materials Act. But but should we kind of bullet point through some of the other key highlights, like spend a few minutes, uh, and then we'll start nearing the, I guess, the more reflective conclusion, which I was hoping to get at. 
Yeah, of course. I mean, one of the big things, and this is something that I found quite relieving because I was asking myself why we hadn't done this. <laughs> but one thing that's good for the, uh, in terms of ecology, is there's going to be a push on a new global deal on nature and biodiversity yeah. and protecting these, which is going to be discussed in Montreal and at COP27. We had an announcement that they're going to double the EU's capacity to fight wildfires over the next year, where it's going to buy an additional 10 amphibious planes and two helicopters to help fight this across the EU. We saw a big announcement that, and this was something that I found quite surprising, where 100 billion euros has been dispersed to member states as part of next-gen EU. And on top of that, there's still another 700 billion euros that still haven't gone into the economy. There's still a lot of space for a lot of support. Mm -hmm. And on the economic front, there was quite a lot of talk of uh, reform. So reforming economic governance, um, building on the social market economy that we have, and giving more space for strategic investments and providing more confidence for the financial markets that are operating in the EU. And on top of that, something that I found quite useful and quite interesting was the uh, mention of treaty reform, which is yeah. a big thing that we've been screaming I about. I wasn't expecting that, to be honest. I, mean, it's, I wasn't expecting it necessarily. It was on my wildcard list, but <laughs> it's something that um, it's nice to hear that people are taking the wishes of the European population seriously. And it should be hammered home This is the result of the Conference on the Future of Europe consultations that took place with ordinary European citizens across the EU. This isn't some fancy-schmancy idea from uh, Paris or Berlin or Brussels. This came from people across the board. I took part in in facilitating some of those COFOE tables, uh, some of the events, and I can tell you now that people were constantly saying, but why can't we just change the treaties? If if Viktor Orban is going to keep stopping this, why can't we reform the treaty so he can't just stop things so that he can blackmail everybody else? And the commission has taken this seriously and is actually listening to what people want. And again, this is the big good thing about this speech. The commission listened to what people want. The commission listened to what people want, what they were scared about, what they were hoping for, and a lot of ways delivered. There was stuff that was missing, like more on the Ch- European Chips Act and yeah. other things, but they, the Commission has listened to what people want. And it's important to remind people this. Plus, we're getting a new institution, guys. <laughs> that doesn't happen every day. This, this is a fun thing. Yeah, we'll, we'll celebrate that with cake here, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> I, I suppose on, on giving people what they want, I, the question then becomes, and I think you wrote an excellent piece because you also write a weekly newsletter or, or almost daily nowadays, uh, reflecting on European ongoings, French ongoings. It's picking up, yeah. <laughs> but you wrote one a few days ago reflecting on the State of Union 2021 and seeing how well they met all the targets uh, that, or all the promises they kept. And I think looking at 2022 now, do you think that this is one where you can do the same thing and check off and say, yes, met this, yes, they met this, yes, they met this, this is coming? I definitely think that uh, it's definitely possible. I mean, there was nothing uh, pie in the sky about this speech. It was a lot of very concrete, I mean, additional um, support for Ukraine, you know, continuing sanctions with Russia, developing the European political community. What form that takes, nobody knows. But there's already talk about what form the institution takes, what agencies would be uh, attached to that. Energy is something that we'll be able to see directly through the financial metrics and the metrics we receive and how you feel. Next-gen EU, similar strategic autonomy in terms of the Critical Raw Materials Act. 
everything here can be quantified and everything here can be analyzed with relative simplicity. And I think that we wouldn't have too much trouble looking at everything, taking it off and being sure that everything works and everything was done. And I think this is, again, I'm going to keep saying this because I think it's important because this is why we have the State of the Union in the first place. When you have a commission that listens to what European citizens want, and when you have a commission that acts on those in meaningful and measurable ways, that is where we can prove to people that the European project is successful, is working, and is something that we can build on and develop on together. And this is something that I think is incredibly important. And I'm saying this not as a politician, and I don't have von der Leyen holding a gun to my head or <laughs> threatening me in some way, but this is really important to keep hammering home. We have a commission that is listening to what we want. Whether they're being blackmailed by the parliament, that's an entirely different question. But we have a commission that's delivering on what European citizens want, and this is very, very important. Hmm. And... I mean, I think that's a great optimistic note to end on, but I'm going to make a bit more pessimistic here because one of the things that's happening this week in in, uh, in Europe and which I did a podcast on last week was the Italian elections. And I'm going to tie this in here, but uh, and it looks like in Italy, they're going to elect a right-leaning government led by Maloney. And there's been a lot of, I guess, talks, a bit of fears amongst the, the deeper EU experts that this will lead to a much stronger right-wing pact within the EU with the Polish counterparts and Hungarian counterparts finding a new ally in Italy. Can we see this emerging? And do you think those will have impacts on a lot of those promising promises that we've seen von der Leyen lay out? I mean, anything's possible. Let's be entirely clear. I mean, it's important to understand what the State of the Union, as it was, was, but you also need to be cautious about the future. I mean, obviously, Maloney uh, being the leader in Italy is a huge step backwards, in my opinion, for not only Italy, but for the European Union. But it's also an opportunity to look at what's happening. And I'm, I don't think we're going to go into Brexit levels of apocalyptic political chaos, because, I mean, if that happens in the European Union, we may as well just pack up and go home. But um, what we're going to see is we're going to see a slightly more combative Italy. And we saw this already with Salvini back in the day. And this was something that we survived. Let's be honest, we survived and we progressed and we kept going. But there is an issue. And what I think we need to be aware of when this is happening is that we need to be very, very clear that there is a chance that they will frustrate the legislative process at the council, at the parliament level. There is the threat of the formally announced coalition between all the far-right parties and the ECR of creating some kind of group that would be second largest in the European or third largest in the European parliament ahead of Renew. And there is always the risk that they will all mutually reinforce themselves. And we could even see this spill over into countries like France or whatever with the 2027 elections, the 24 parliamentary elections. But there is always reason to have hope. I mean, as long as we are very clear that these, these are reflections of people's frustrations, as long as we're clear about why people vote for these organizations and these parties and these kind of people... We can fight against it. I mean, a lot of it is misinformation. A lot of it is disinformation. A lot of it is European citizens being misled. A lot of it is also, 
and let's be entirely clear, progressives, conservatives, socialists, liberals, not necessarily getting the message across to the general person or the general population well enough. And I think this almost mounts a kind of challenge to those who are pro-European and who want to prevent the, let's say, collapse of the European Union, that they have to up their game, that we have to do more work, that we have to fight harder, and we have to be smarter. Mm. We have to know how to combat this. And we've had a lot of practice already, but we need to make sure that we're continuing the work. We can't just sit back and go, oh no, Meloni, whatever we do. We have to fight. We have to support our Italian friends and allies who are pro-European. And we need to make sure that we're doing everything we can to keep things going in the right direction. But there will be negotiations with the Meloni government. There will be negotiations with the far right. And thankfully, if we want to be either hopeful or naive, they have said that they're not going to call into question the European Union or Italy's place within it. Yeah. Their quest is mostly to either frustrate things they don't like <laughs> or to slightly change the dimensions of what the European Union is and could be. And at that point, we have a normative battle to define what the EU is. And again, this is something that comes down to you, me, pro-European parties, political actors, NGOs, even businesses in some ways. We all have a role to play, not just the parties, not just the groups at the European level. We all have a part to play in combating this far-right, anti-European, Eurosceptic narrative in order to make sure that we're going in the right direction that suits all of us and that works to our benefit. Yeah, I think that's a, a remarkably poetic way of leaving us on a note of optimism out of a situation of pessimism. But uh, before we wrap up, I always ask like a, a fun or more personal question, you know, put a lighter mood, because I think we had a great conversation here just reflecting on these issues. And I mean, hopefully we left all of you with some more questions to ponder in the wake of the State of the Union. But as is tradition here in the Brussels bubble, everybody here, when they're watching the State of the Union, they don't do it alone. They do it with their handy bingo card in hand. And were there any spots in that bingo card that you hit or that you wish you hit? Um, I had... I'm trying to remember my bingo card now. I found it quite funny that pretty much every single bingo card that I saw had some form of Guy Timmermans interrupts the speech somehow. And I'm surprised that he didn't. But I was... What surprised me, actually, about the State of Union is that Broadly speaking, the support was almost unanimous for that. And that's what I had on my bingo card. And it's something <laughs> that I managed to take off. And I did not expect to have a or an almost unanimous support for the speech. Because I mean, there was some criticism from the right and from the far left, of course. But it was, you know, the, the support for the speech surprised me Yeah, a lot. Well, that's a great box to take off as a European. Or, I mean, I am mostly European, so I'll put that in there. <laughs> uh, but uh, we'll wrap up here. And thanks, Julian, again for coming on. If people want to know more about what you're doing, if people want to know more of your analysis, which I thought was very insightful in this podcast, where can they find you? I mean, you can find me on most social media, Twitter at Julian Hoed. You can find me on LinkedIn, on Facebook. You can also read The French Dispatch, which covers French, global, and European, most importantly, politics, at julianhoez.substack.com. And, of course, if anybody has any questions... My DMs are always open on Twitter. You can always tweet at me. You can always interact with me on Twitter because I don't see it as work per se, but it's something that I find interesting and it's something I like to share with yeah. people. 
And I mean, we run around in some of the same circles and I'm sure you can say that I'm more than happy to talk about anything with whoever, really. And yeah. if I don't know, I'll find out. And it gives me <laughs> something to write about, to be honest. So Yeah, true. Well, I'll drop a few dozen links in the description so people can find them easily. But Perfect. yeah, And if you listen till the end, thank you for just for sticking around. If you want to be on this podcast or know somebody who should be on this podcast, please let me know. There's also an email in the description below. And I mean, I look forward to talking to you guys again, to everybody again next weekend or, uh, or next week or whenever the next podcast is on. So goodbye, everybody. Au revoir.